I go from this majestic place with a loyal and joyful heart. Loyal to who? Thank you and farewell. Farewell? He said farewell? He said farewell. He's leaving? See you later. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It's looking better. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. I still am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFC, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. As we go to air, there are just hours, hours, no longer days, hours left in the Donald Trump presidency slash national nightmare slash national emergency. By the time we uh, join you for tomorrow's broadcast, Donald Trump will be former President Donald Trump. How about that, Desi Doyen? How about them apples? I never thought we'd get here. Yeah, me neither. Uh, He will have none of the powers of the presidency and the bully pulpit that came with it, uh, nor will he have the general absurd immunity from criminal prosecution that presidents still enjoy for some reason. Joe Biden will be our president when we next speak, and Kamala Harris will be vice president. Our long national nightmare, the worst of it in any event, uh, will be over. For many, however, these may be excruciatingly long hours. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, exactly which part of the presidential immunity Donald Trump will no longer enjoy is still an open question as we go to air at this hour with just hours left in that nightmarish presidency. Donald Trump is said to be preparing to pardon or commute the sentences of more than 100 people in his final hours in office. The announcement is, spe- is expected to come at any time now, perhaps even before we are off air. 
Trump met on Sunday with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Don't forget, Donald Trump also pardoned Jared Kushner's father some weeks ago. Uh, He also met with his daughter, Ivanka, and other aides for a significant portion of the day to review a long list of pardon requests. According to people briefed on the meeting, in the past week, Trump has been particularly consumed with the question of whether to issue preemptive pardons to his adult children, to top aides, to himself, according to people familiar with the conversations. Aides say they no longer expect a preemptive self-pardon or pardons for any family members. Really? Are you sure about that? But they say the situation could always change with a volatile and mercurial president. Uh, Oh, you think? (laughs) Neither Trump nor his children have been charged with crimes yet. But the question of a presidential self-pardon has become more urgent and controversial, according to Washington Post, since the January 6th storming of the Capitol by Trump supporters. Some aides say Trump could face criminal liability for inciting the crowd. It probably did not help that Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the floor of the U.S. Senate today uh, where they will soon be sitting in judgment of the uh, at the unprecedented second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. McConnell had this to say. The last time the Senate convened, we had just reclaimed the Capitol from violent criminals who tried to stop Congress from doing our duty. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. We certified the people's choice for their 46th president. President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris will be sworn in. We'll have a safe and successful inaugural right here on the west front of the Capitol. Well, of course, we all hope that it will be safe. Uh, What's going on uh, over the next few hours in the nation's capital uh, suggests that many are concerned it will not be. But uh, there's Mitch McConnell saying that the president himself provoked that violence. And while some believe that Trump could face criminal liability in addition to that upcoming impeachment trial for his incitement to insurrection, others say that a presidential self-pardon never before attempted by a president would be dubious uh, constitutionally and could anger Senate Republicans who are preparing to serve as key jurors at Trump's impeachment trial and would amount to an admission of guilt that could then be used against him in potential civil litigation related to the Capitol attack. That said, I will still be absolutely stunned if he does not pardon himself. I will be delighted, but I will be stunned. Uh, he has hours left to decide, I guess. Uh, even with hours left, I I can't believe any of this is going to end quietly. Yeah, it seems very hard to conceive that it would end with just a whimper. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> We've been caught by surprise many yeah. times. Yeah, so. well, I, I just I will be stunned if he doesn't uh, try to uh, pardon himself, whether it's constitutionally valid or not, but we will see. This would also surprise me. Aides say it's unlikely he will grant clemency to Steve Bannon, his former campaign advisor, who you recall was charged last year with defrauding donors, taking their money uh, supposedly to build this wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Also, that he's unlikely to grant clemency to his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, 
uh, who has come under scrutiny as part of an investigation that led to charges against two of his associates, and he is believed to be uh, the focus of the uh, Southern District of New York. So I would be stunned if he didn't pardon him either, but we shall see. Of course, his pardons, when they do come, will not be to offer mercy. They will be meant as everything else in Trump's life as a way to help him in some fashion, at least as he sees it. It certainly uh, won't be a last minute gesture in charitable reconciliation, because, of course, that is the last thing Donald Trump is interested in in their coverage of what Daily Beast describes as Trump's pathetic final weekend in office. Journalist Aswan Subsang reports various senior administration officials just want the show to end. They are tired of fighting and even more tired of trying to avoid their mercurial bosses. There's that word again. Uh, mercurial bosses, verbal lashings and delusional crusades. One senior official told Subsang, quote, he asked me earlier this month about how to punish certain Republicans who weren't standing with him and abandoning him after all he had done for them and the Republican Party. The official said during that moment, I kept thinking about how January 20th could not come fast enough. Well, tell us about it. Uh, even Trump, they say, won't be able to put Washington in the rearview mirror just yet. However, with the second impeachment trial uh, looming, the 45th U.S. president still uh, had yet to decide this weekend on exactly who would staff and lead his legal team, partly because the good lawyers have run for the hills or want nothing to do with the Trump brand name anymore. Good luck there, Mr. President. For a few more hours. Meanwhile, <laughs> as CNN notes, uh, with the day, with one day remaining in his term, Trump was still consumed with grievance over Republicans that he thinks abandoned him, and insistent to people around him that he actually won the election that he lost. Yes, he is still telling himself that the soon-to-be former president has reportedly been in a foul mood for several days, has lost interest in the performative parts of the presidency that he once relished. While he was eagerly anticipating his military-style send-off from Joint Base Andrews on inauguration morning, uh, there were already signs that the crowd may be smaller than he had hoped. And a slate of actual celebrities lined up for Biden's inauguration from Tom Hanks to Garth Brooks to Lady Gaga to Jennifer Lopez disappointed a president who tried and often failed to secure A-list support for his own presidency. Womp womp. He hasn't left the White House or been seen in public for a week been a nice week. Huh? It has been. It's yeah, been nice it's and quiet. Nice, yeah. On Monday evening, he he uh, taped a final message from the White House ticking through achievements that he believes should define his administration. Good luck with that, sir. In the video released uh, just moments before airtime today, he said, quote, this week we inaugurate a new administration and pray for its success in keeping America safe and prosperous. Well, that's unusually thoughtful. Uh, he said, we did what we came here to do and so much more. Well, that sounds right. He came there to undermine the great American democratic experiment and rule of law. And watching 400,000 die due to his dereliction of duty, leaving an economy in shambles. 
but one that has helped to tremendously boost the fortunes of the wealthiest, well, I guess that's the so much more part he was referring to. His only mention of the 400,000 American lives that have now been lost to the virus was to say that he grieved them and pledged, quote, in their memory to wipe out this horrible pandemic once and for all. Of course, he could have tried to do that while he was actually president. (laughs) That's crazy talk. His remarks uh, made no mention of President-elect Joe Biden by name. Though he did refer to a, quote, new administration to which... (laughs) I'm sorry, he didn't even mention the word Biden. Nope, couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Couldn't get it out of his mouth. But he did say that uh, he would hand over power to the new administration at noon on Wednesday. I guess that's about the closest we're ever going to get to a concession from this creep. He asked for a military-style ceremony for his final departure from Joint Joint Base Andrews on Wednesday because, I guess, as the commander-in-chief, yes, he can still order the military to pretend they like him. Few others are willing to do so, it seems. Invitations have gone out to Trump's friends and his allies and former administration officials telling invitees they may bring as many as five guests each as he tries to pad out the crowd But at this moment, not even Vice President Mike Pence is expected to attend the departure ceremony, according to two Pence sources that uh, CNN spoke with. Other former officials like former Chief of Staff John Kelly, former White House Counsel Don McGahn, they got invitations, but they are also not planning to attend. That, as President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris held a memorial service on Tuesday for the 400,000 Americans who have been killed so far by the pandemic, something that I suspect never even occurred to Donald Trump to do. He certainly is not attending that ceremony. Uh, He will not be missed. Neither is he missed already on Twitter, where he has been permanently banned Online misinformation about election fraud, you'll be shocked to learn, has plunged 73% after several social media sites suspended Trump and his key allies last week, according to uh, research firm Zignal Labs, underscoring the power of tech companies to limit the falsehoods, poisoning public debate when they act aggressively. I should also note it underscores the power of tech companies to limit any information that they feel like, uh, you know, that they want to keep banned from the public discourse. I hope to discuss that, among other things, with my guest momentarily. Uh, Zignal, in any event, found that election information dropped swiftly and steeply on Twitter and other platforms in the days after the Twitter ban. Zignal found that the use of hashtags affiliated with the Capitol riot also dipped considerably. Mentions of the hashtag Fight for Trump, which had been uh, deployed across Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media services in the week before the rally, that dropped 95% with Trump's ban. And with the ban of tens of thousands of other accounts who are affiliated with the QAnon conspiracy group, The research by Zignal and other groups suggests that a powerful disinformation ecosystem was central to pushing millions of Americans to reject the election results and may have trouble surviving 
without his social media accounts. Media watchdog Media Matters found that the number of people clicking and sharing content from right-leaning Facebook pages also fell substantially in the days after Facebook issued its ban of Trump's account. Disinformation researchers have found that relatively few accounts acted as, quote, super spreaders during the election, hmm. with their posts generating a disproportionate share of the falsehoods and misleading narratives. So, yeah, in addition to Trump camp is uh, Trump campaign rallies serving as actual super spreader events for the virus. He was also a super spreader of misinformation. So both online and offline, he was a super spreader. Poison everywhere. Hopefully those days are now over, but we shall see what a new administration brings at an unprecedented moment in American history as the nation's capital is now locked down in order to simply swear in a new president. That is among the other uh, nightmares that Donald Trump has left behind. Let's take a quick break here. We will head out to D.C. to speak with our guest today about how things are going at this hour in the nation's capital on the brink of the Biden presidency, if not yet the full end of the Trump era. Progressive columnist, broadcaster, former insurance executive, and former Bernie Sanders campaign writer Richard R.J. Eskow joins us next on the broadcast, and we've got lots to chat with him about today. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Hours. Just hours left now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In an unprecedented move, the National Mall and much of the surrounding area in D.C. is closed to the public days ahead of Wednesday's presidential inauguration. Hundreds of thousands of spectators typically watch the ceremonies, many fewer when the ceremony includes the swearing-in of Donald J. Trump, but... We don't need to rub that in. This year, the Secret Service has launched a massive security operation to protect the Biden inauguration following this month's Trump-incited insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Vehicle traffic in much of the city will be prohibited or limited to residents and businesses only. The D.C. Metro is shuttering stations in the city's core and near the mall, and street closures will continue through Thursday at the discretion of the Secret Service. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser said, quote, We know this is very inconvenient for our residents and businesses. Clearly, we are in uncharted waters. 
A raging pandemic, which as of today has officially killed at least 400,000 Americans, is forcing most inaugural events online. And the January 6th riot, of course, at the U.S. Capitol, which left five people dead, is prompting heightened security in the nation's capital. Fencing has been erected around the Capitol building as well as around businesses and other federal buildings throughout the city. Some fences are topped with razor wire, similar to fencing that was used, ironically enough, in the summer to surround the White House. Some 25,000 troops, more than we currently have stationed in Iraq or Afghanistan, are now flooding into the city ahead of the inauguration. Adding to those unprecedented conditions for an inaugural, Joe Biden is taking office amid the still unrelenting pandemic, which Donald Trump refused to recognize almost as much as he refused to recognize his decisive loss to Joe Biden, as much as his four years of refusing to recognize the ongoing devastation of climate change, which we will discuss more about with Desi Doyen in a bit in our latest Green News report, as much as the economic devastation that is also being left behind by yet another failed, devastating Republican presidency, leaving the nation in ruins as he leaves office, as if this nation never seems to learn. Now, of course, the question soon turns to what Joe Biden may have learned from all of this. Though even that happens amid an unprecedented second impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate for the soon-to-be former president, where we might have been spending the better part of the last two months discussing the incoming Joe Biden administration and examining and or criticizing and or lauding his plans and his cabinet appointees, Unfortunately, we have been largely consumed by Donald Trump's pathetic, sore loserism and incitement to violence and the need to lock down the entire nation's capital just to swear in the new president towards a peaceful transition of power, hopefully. Joining us now on this historic precipice for good or ill to look both forward and back and at a city in lockdown not far from his windows in the D.C. metropolitan area, I suspect, is our old friend Richard R.J. Escow, longtime writer, columnist, as well as host and managing editor of The Zero Hour, a weekly radio and TV program described as progressive journalism for an age of crisis. I'm sure I have no idea what he's talking about. All of that... Uh, follows Richard's years of work as a progressive policy analyst and former, em emphasis on former, I believe, health insurance executive who also served as the senior writer and editor for the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. Welcome back to the broadcast, Richard Escow. Always a pleasure, Brad. You know, I, I don't know that I ever got to ask you, Richard, uh, during your uh, various appearances uh, on this show over the past year or so, but is, is there a reason why you did not return to the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign? Not, no special reason. I just, you know, I did that, and Bernie, after the 2016 campaign, invited me to join him working in the Senate, but I felt, you know, I've if I've got anything to say, I better say it now. And, you know, when you work in the Senate, for example, mm. uh, you can't have your own show, you can't write your columns, you can't say things that might compromise your boss. So 
I just wanted to do that now. I got but you. I still, you know, still in touch with Bernie, still in touch with his people, still have a great relationship with them. Just don't, uh, just didn't want to do that again. I got you. All right, and one other uh, point. First, credit where it is due, Richard. The last time you were on the broadcast, it was our final presidential debate show uh, with you and our friend Heather Digby Parton. And your final comment on that show, while hilarious at the time, frankly, has come to both haunt this show and perhaps this country. I don't even know if you remember it, uh, but I've thought about it pretty much every single day since then. We've talked about it on the show. I'll, I'll play you a clip just as a reminder. There's always that final scene in the horror m movie, the Carrie moment, when the hand reaches up out of the grave. Let's make sure the hand doesn't reach out of the grave. <laughs> Let's use that trauma to really protect the country and make sure that Trump loses big. So that was just before the, uh, I think, that yeah, that was just before the election. And uh, the concern was, well, you know, if he loses, will he go? and that he would just, you know, keep coming back from the dead. Well, Richard, I think you were on the mark as uh, about as much as you possibly could be. And now we are just hours away from Joe Biden officially becoming president. Are we still wise to keep an eye out for that last minute hand reaching out of the grave? Or are we safe yet, Richard? Well, I think we're probably safe from Biden not taking office, but uh, there could definitely be more violence, more incidents. I, they're taking extraordinary precautions around here. Mm -hmm. uh, just a couple weeks ago, we moved away from the D.C.-Maryland border to a few miles outside D.C., but even here, uh, you know, what, maybe I'm five miles from D.C. now, the, the uh, not that much, but a few miles. But anyway, even here, for example, I got a notice from Federal Express yesterday Packages may be delayed during the next couple of days due to extraordinary precautions mm. that are being taken around the inauguration. And then, you know, the emergency broadcasting system sent out a text this morning saying that Governor Maryland Governor Larry Hogan has issued a state of emergency around, yeah, the Governor Larry mm -hmm. Hogan declared a state of emergency for presidential inauguration request presidential disaster declaration because of those 25,000 troops that you mentioned. A lot of them are Maryland troops. A mm -hmm. lot of extraordinary precautions, are, you know, are being taken around here. I was, you know, I, on January 6th itself, I had a phone conference with some people on the Hill, and I hadn't been checking the news. And I thought, well, that's rude. They, they canceled this call, and they didn't even <laughs> tell me. And, of course, they were cowering under desks and, you know, running, literally running for their lives. Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain kind of electricity in the air. I, you know, if I had to, and even, you know, I, I don't know about you, I've been predicting something like what happened on January 6th for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was still a shock, and hopefully we'll get to move on into, uh, you know, a new era. But, uh, you know, I'm until Biden takes that oath of office and is safely ensconced in the White House, I'm going to still keep my fingers crossed. I think you are wise. And, you know, if we're if we're sort of feeling that tension and that electricity you describe all the way out here on the West Coast, I can only imagine 
what it must be like in D.C. at this hour, just uh, hours from the swearing in of a new president under these conditions. Uh, Richard, I've seen some blowback from uh, from some progressive quarters, not a lot, but some regarding the response to the attempted U.S. Capitol insurrection you referenced uh, just over a couple of weeks ago. I, I actually feel that the coverage has uh, from the media has actually largely been on point given the death and destruction that was wrought, uh, which we still seem to be learning more about each day as more video from the riot comes to light and so forth. I share worries that we may see an overreaction as we saw following 9-11. But so far, I think the response, including, frankly, Trump's second impeachment, has been largely appropriate. I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts as someone who lives a bit closer to the action than we do out here on the West Coast. Is the reaction so far appropriate, both by uh, media and by, uh, you know, elected officials? Well, I think uh, my basic answer is generally yes, but I also don't need to turn it on CNN and hear uh, John Kasich explain to me, you know, presented to me as a model of the kind of governance we're going to be happy to return to. I think the, the bipartisan consensus represented by John Kasich and Rahm Emanuel, or whoever else I see, on my television set these days, largely brought us a lot of the problems we have today. Mm. So I don't really need to see that. I think in terms of the Democrats, I think largely, yes, they've been fine. I do have to say that uh, when the votes were being counted and I watched the speeches on the Senate floor, and uh, may I be struck dead for saying this, but by and large, the Republicans were better orators than the Democrats, mm-hmm. that uh, that when I see uh, Chuck Schumer and then Mitch McDonnell, Mitch McConnell speak, and uh, McConnell is more eloquent, it doesn't bode well mm-hmm. in my own mind for the Democrat Party. Cory Booker was eloquent. You know, other, there were individual eloquent senators, mm-hmm. but I think the Democrats they need to top their game rhetorically and otherwise. But you know, I think the impeachment was largely valid. Um, I'd love to have seen them pursue a different kind of approach, maybe a deal with Republicans to have Trump declare guilty of uh, fomenting insurrection so we can never hold office again. But but I get it, you know. Uh, I, I, I get why they did it, so I'm not terribly troubled by that. The thing that worries me the most is all the calls for stricter laws, uh, regarding uh, monitoring freedom of speech mm-hmm. and the sort of authoritarian obeisance given to Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Zuckerberg and these other people, you know, Jack and Mark, make them shut up. You know, <laughs> I would like us to be more sensitive to the fact that we should not live in a society where two or three CEOs can turn off the speech of an elected president or anybody else without considerable public debate. So, well, I get that Trump's speech is a clear and present danger. Parler may be a clear and present danger. I also think I've been around a while, and I know that when you start rolling out these tools of silencing and oppress suppression, it always winds up getting pointed at the left. So I would like to see mm-hmm. us like hit the brakes on all of that stuff, particularly the left 
or, you know, Democrats as a mm-hmm. whole just say, hold on, we don't need to be authoritarian about this, we just need to be smarter about it. And, you know, I share your concerns, and as, especially as someone who has been, uh, I, I think it's been since the election, if I recall correctly, uh, you know, I too was shut down on Twitter for a couple of days for, in my case, actually discussing accurately Georgia's uh, voting system and how it works. And I had to eventually delete my tweet in order to uh, be allowed back on Twitter. So I share those concerns. That said, on the other side, Richard, uh, there has reportedly been a plummet in hate speech and violent rhetoric in the in recent days on social media after Trump's banning on Twitter and Facebook and the deplatforming of various far-right extremist groups and QAnon conspiracy theorists and so forth. But yes, I have heard concerns from progressives about the tactics used to get us here uh, meant ostensibly to help cool down a very volatile, uh, potentially very violent moment, uh, but that do set a concerning precedent for big tech to block unpopular speech. It sounds like that is something that you are worried about. Uh, And yet at the same time, you say that, well, you understand the fact that uh, Donald Trump is out there, you know, firing up violence, essentially. I mean, what is the right way to go about that? How do you keep a president from doing that if he is a sitting president and yet he's out there, uh, you know, inciting violence? I still, you know, look, I'm close to a free speech absolutist, and I think that the best uh, solution to hate speech is effective counter speech. People are going to say, well, no, you can't do it that. Look, we've had the Alien and Sedition Act. We've had all sorts of unconstitutional laws in this country, but we are not traditionally a country, for example, that would go in uh, 120 years ago, and if a newspaper printed something inflammatory, uh, shut it down and smash up the printing presses. And, uh, you know, we're not a country that muzzles people unless there's an extreme, extreme reason to do so. So, and I'm not even convinced that just because we're not seeing it on social media doesn't mean that hate speech isn't out there. So, uh, you know, people will find other channels. I think we're going to wake up one day and find out that we live in a world we didn't want to live in because we took the short-term expedient solution and did not go through the naughty work of figuring out how to counteract Trump's speech. And that includes the media and everyone else. You know, I I think the fact that, that the media has become increasingly, I won't, don't want to say partisan because that implies that there's some MSNBC is Democratic. It implies that CNN and New York Times are inherently Democratic Party organs. I don't think they are, but they've become partisan in the sense of being openly anti-Trump and at the same time promoting the John Kasichs of the world, Mm -hmm. who also, as you well know, have engaged in voter suppression for years, have have engaged in dog-whistle, racial attacks of various kinds for years, because when you suppress votes, that's whose votes you're suppressing, Mm -hmm. and on and on. So, uh, you know, I I think that when we allow CNN, MSNBC, Jack Dorsey, and Mark Zuckerberg to decide what kind of opposition to Trump is uh, acceptable and which isn't, 
you know, it's a Faustian bargain, and and uh, I think we should be deeply, deeply concerned about it. I am deeply concerned about it, and yet, at the same time, Richard, I, I, I'm not sure how you deal with it. I, frankly, it seemed to me that Donald Trump was violating the terms of service on Twitter for at least four years. It seems to me that he should have been barred for that. I think anybody else would have had they said the same sort of things that he has over the years. And yet he was sort of given, you know, Jack uh, Twitter's uh, CEO, Jack Dorsey, sort of gave him a pass because, oh, he's the president of the United States. And what he says is newsworthy. I mean, how do you deal with that? Uh, you know, it, I, 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 I mean, I guess you're saying that, you know, the answer to uh, 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 sp- bad, troubling speech is more speech. But when that speech is actually causing violence and people to die, what actions are left? Well, you know, it, it's a great point, because the fact is, whether you're talking about traditional media like CNN, CBS and so on, or whether you're talking about new media or digital media like Twitter, the fact is, it's a very open question in my mind whether Trump would ever have become president had they not used their ability to selectively amplify some voices over other voices mm. to, in effect, make him president. You remember Les Moonves, the president mm-hmm. of CBS, saying Trump may be bad for the country, but he's great for CBS. I remember working for Bernie when he was drawing 30,000 people to a rally. Trump was drawing 11,000 people, but they live broadcast Trump for two hours a night on CNN mm. because he was good for CNN. Tw- Jack Dorsey didn't leave Trump up on Twitter because he believes in freedom of speech. Uh, you know, I was about to use a, a word that's not FCC approved, <laughs> BS. He, he left him up because he was good for Twitter and he was good for business. And the fact is, there's no clean solution to this. We've got deep-rooted problems, but we need a truly impartial media that isn't driven quite so nakedly by the profit motive, by clicks, by Mm -hmm. conflict, by and that includes not just social media, but traditional media as well. So we need a different media model. You know, we're not going to fix it overnight, but I would just like to see us, us, in the broadest sense, meaning, you know, everybody left and center. Uh, I would like to see us be a lot more reluctant to go for, you know, all of a sudden these guys are heroes mm. because now that Trump's leaving office right. and, you know, the business downside is greater to them than the business upside, now they're willing to ban him or... Uh, and that makes them heroes. Well, not in my book, and I think we should be very reluctant to go for the silencing of that. Look, I've been on the receiving end of it from mm-hmm. Google, from from Facebook, from YouTube, from Twitter, and uh, I was off Twitter for eight months. Mm. And uh, sounds no nice. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know what? I got to tell you, I finally, you know, somebody said, "Well, write their lobbyists." and CC your congressman, it was Jamie Raskin at the time, and it worked. Within 45 minutes, I was back on. No explanation, I was just back on. Hmm. And within 24 hours, I was thinking, you know, it was nice when I wasn't on on Twitter. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. Uh, we should be careful what we complain about, but I, but I know right. I, I do hear you, and I'm not, and I really, I don't know the solution. I am troubled when I see 
information out there that is clearly tied to violence. And I take, you know, as someone who's had a website for years, you know, at bradblog.com, I would be very concerned when I would have, uh, you know, commenters who get worked up by something I've said or that I report. Yeah. And I feel I have a responsibility. It's the last thing I want to do, but there are cases where I have to ban someone or remove a comment because they get so worked up that they begin to do something that sounds a hell of a lot like inciting violence. And I feel I have a responsibility well, you know, to do something there. I know. I mean, when I was writing full-time about the banks for the Huffington Post, you know, people started writing if I wrote about Jamie Dimon and what a great CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase and what a crook he was, which mm-hmm. was one of my recurring themes, you know, people started to hang him. Right. You know, and I would be, no, look, this is not the way we operate. So I feel that very strongly. And, for example, when that when that doctor was murdered, uh, the guy that Bill Ry- O'Reilly had been attacking, oh, yeah. Dr. Tiller. Right. And when the Unitarians were murdered by the guy who had Sean Hannity's book on his shelf. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote about it at the time that if anybody ever did anybody harm and they had any th- writings of mine, I would be devastated. I would have to change my whole life to make amends for it. Mm-hmm. These guys didn't even care. Yep. They just didn't care. So, and now, of course, Trump's taken it, and his followers have taken it to a new level. So, yeah, I mean, if they don't have a conscience, we have to figure it, which they don't, then we have to figure out how, you know, how we respond as a society. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, I'm ambivalent about, you know, maybe, sure, we probably need to do something in the interim to get the heat down. But on the other hand, I am kind of a free speech absolutist, and I know we're always the one. Look, after the stories of Russia came out, I had this pretty high level of skepticism about them, but who did they shut down? Counterpunch. You know, I mean, they went after the left. Putin is a, is a right-wing authoritarian oligarch, but they went after the lefties. This is like, you know, we don't learn from history that when you unleash these dogs of censorship, uh, it's the left they wind up mm. chewing the leg off Good. sooner rather than later. Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I, uh, warning heard. Thank you for that. Um, I've got a couple of more uh, points here in a very short time that I want to uh, try to run through with you. Uh, one of, of course, one of the central reasons that I initially wanted to have you on the show Uh, Richard, was to sort of look forward a bit to what we should expect from the new Biden administration as based on what we have learned, at least so far, from his various policy pronouncements and cabinet selections, etc. Normally, we would have spent the last two months talking about that, but we've hardly talked about it at all very quickly. And at least on this point, we'll have more time to to discuss in the weeks ahead. But are you encouraged by what you see so far from a progressive perspective, from what Biden has uh, so far done and announced or so forth? Are you worried? Are you still in wait-and-see mode when it comes to the various priorities for the progressive community? I would say mixed bag, that there are some appointments that I'm not at all happy about, some I'm pretty happy about. There are some decisions that or proposals that have been made that I'm You know, I would propose more, but they're pretty good, better than, you know, what Obama had proposed at a similar point in his presidency, for example. So, 
I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think that, you know, look, if Biden has a fantastic first six months, we're going to have, my view is the activist side of my personality is we're going to, we're going to have to be as organized as heck to push him further. If he disappoints, we're going to have to be as organized as heck to push him further. So I'm kind of like trying to do it split screen with what he's doing and what everybody else needs to do. I, I, I certainly think he's done some things pretty close to right and has indicated he might do more. And then there are other things where, gee, I really wish he hadn't put those people in and I would have liked to see you know more of a clean break from interventionist military policy or what have you. So I guess it's 30%, that's pretty good, 30%, man, <laughs> eh, not so thrilled, 30% wait and see, but that's not too bad. No. Just, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm not looking to be led by the president, I'm just looking to see where a president needs to be pushed and where they need to be uh, allied with, uh-huh. you know, so that's that's how I'm looking at it. Well, and so far, you know, it could be a lot worse. Well, I was going to say, coming from a progressive, uh, saying 30% pretty good, that's pretty good. Never mind the fact that I think your math of 30-30-30 leaves an unknown 10%, which we will uh, look forward to finding out where that last 10% falls. Uh, Richard, we, we're big on accountability on this show, and to be frank, I'm still... I'm still pretty uh, furious at Barack Obama for his uh, look forward, not back approach to the last Republican presidency, which left the nation in ruins at its conclusion. And and I hold, uh, you know, no no small part of the rise of Donald Trump and the continuing extremism of the Republican Party, at least in part, against the Obama administration and their failure to bring accountability the last time a Republican presidency ended in disaster. So on that note... Uh, I'm wondering how you would like to see Democrats, uh, A, handle the impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate, given that it will, uh, you know, hold up uh, Biden's agenda and his cabinet appointments at least a bit. And uh, second, um, I'm wondering how you would like to see the Biden DOJ move ahead with accountability as far as, you know, whether it's more important to look forward than back at a, at a Trump administration who Biden justifiably worries might dominate his administration as well if, if there are protracted investigations and prosecutions and so forth. How would you handle that moving forward? I would personally like to see a whole lot more attention on the part of the House and Senate on making lives of working people better and expedite the impeachment fast, turn everything you need to over to the Department of Justice and then the local federal prosecutors, and get on with the people's business, because Democrats have wasted four years focusing on Donald Trump, which leaves the political energy with Trump, and not focusing enough in their messaging on the American people. I think they need to change that fast. I think they need to come out of the gate with an aggressive plan to help working people of this country. They'll never create the society I want to see, but within their own parameters, if they don't come out looking like they're fighting for the American people and they look like they're obsessing over Trump, I think it would be a big mistake. But how do you do both? How do you hold him accountable for what he did and avoid you know, Republicans upping the ante in the future uh, if, if he is not held accountable now? Well, I think you can have, a, a, and I think you should have a trial, and, and I believe they're going to have one. 
but it needs to be focused. I think it needs to be brief. I think it can't be another obscure. I felt that the uh, Ukraine charges were too obscure for most voters. I think it has to be you cheated, you incited violence, you tried to overthrow an election, and I would love to see them throw in all the voter suppression the Republican Party has done for the last 30 years. Mm. They probably won't, but I think if they make it about Trump and all the rest of you Republicans are fine, and Lindsey Graham gets to stand up again and act like he hasn't been going along with this for four years now, I think they'll make a huge tactical error. I think they have to have the trial, but I think they should expedite it, and I think they should make sure they're doing the people's business and the people see them doing the people's business. Very good. I had uh, I'd actually hoped to talk to you about uh, lessons learned as a former uh, health insurance uh, uh, executive, uh, lessons learned so far during this pandemic about how to what we should have known and what we need to improve in the system going forward. But we're going to have to wait for that conversation for another day because there's just too damn much to talk about, Richard. I'm sure things will slow down in the near future. You can find him on Twitter when he is not banned at RJ Escal. And you can find uh, his weekly show, The Zero Hour, online at thisisthezerohour.com. And Richard, it looks like you got you have a newsletter now as well. Escow, E-S-K-O-W dot Substack dot com. Sign up for it. I'm going to do the same. Uh, greatly appreciate it, Richard. Always fantastic talking to you, my friend, and I hope to do it again in the near future. Always a pleasure. Anytime. Stay safe out there. Okay, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen. Hey, Des. Hey. It's your last Green News report of the Donald Trump era. Yay! Are you excited? Yes! Me too. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay, well, I think the biggest and best uh, green-related news, Desi Doyen, may have come after we laid down today's green news report. Yeah, it's pretty good. So we will cover that after our latest green news report. Imagine confronting the climate crisis with American jobs and ingenuity leading the world. Joe Biden unveils economic recovery plan with focus on climate. Also plans blitz of action to undo Trump's environmental rollbacks. Trump unleashes his last, last-minute spree of rollbacks and polluter giveaways. Plus, in a blow to Canada's oil industry, sources tell CBC News Biden is also planning to cancel the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. It may finally be the end of the line for the controversial zombie Keystone XL pipeline. I've heard that before. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The consensus among leading economists is we simply cannot afford not to do what I'm proposing. Did he say we can't not afford to not do what he's proposing? I think he did. This is going to be a long four years. 
This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we should mark the moment that this is our final Green News Report when Donald Trump is still the president. Yep, as we go to air, it is the eve of Joe Biden's inauguration as the next president of the United States. Donald Trump and his outgoing administration, however, are using their last hours in office to jam through as many rollbacks of public health, energy and environmental standards as possible, leaving a clogged up mess for the incoming Biden administration and a tangle of what critics are calling legal tricks to tie their hands. Since Trump's decisive election loss in November, Washington Post reports his administration has finalized more than two dozen rules, rollbacks, and rubber-stamped permits. Most of the last-minute giveaways benefit polluters, including new rules in just the last week to cut the royalty rates that oil and gas companies pay for extracting the public's natural resources. Because by America first, he means pay America last and least. Exactly. The Trump Energy Department rolled back energy efficiency standards for furnaces and water heaters, ensuring consumers will pay higher energy bills. And on Friday, Trump Interior Secretary David Bernhardt used his discretion to slash more than three million acres of protected habitat in the Pacific Northwest, more than 15 times what the department had originally proposed opening up to logging companies. Wow. The incoming Biden administration will have to spend months unwinding these policies while simultaneously also trying to enact major initiatives to rebuild the economy amid the pandemic and fight climate change. Biden is planning his own blitz of executive orders to be enacted over the first 10 days of his term to mark a clean break from Trump's disastrous policies. Executive order wars. (laughs) Yeah. According to Biden's incoming chief of staff, Ron Klain, that includes moving to begin the process to formally rejoin the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement. Nice. Biden also will reportedly revoke the on-again, off-again cross-border permit for the controversial Keystone XL tar sands pipeline from Canada. Also nice. That will likely mark the death knell of the project. We'll see. But to pass meaningful, durable legislation, Biden will also have to navigate the political minefield of Congress, where Democrats hold only razor-thin majorities in the House and Senate, and Republicans are predicted to monkey wrench and obstruct. What? In a speech late last week, Biden called on Congress to move swiftly to enact his emergency economic relief plan to revive the economy. It includes major provisions to create jobs by beginning to address the costly impact of man-made climate change on the nation's decrepit, aging infrastructure. It's time to stop talking about infrastructure and to finally start building an infrastructure so we can be more competitive. Millions of good-paying jobs that put Americans to work rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our ports to make them more climate resilient, to make them faster, cheaper, cleaner, to transport American-made goods across our country and around the world. And a majority of registered voters of both parties in the U.S. want the federal government to deal aggressively with man-made climate change. And they support initiatives to fight it, including many of the provisions in Biden's plan. The new survey from Pew, conducted after the November election, found two-thirds of registered voters say the development of clean energy sources should be a high priority for the federal government. Nice. More than 70 percent support stronger fuel efficiency standards for vehicles 
and building a national electric vehicle charging network. Also nice. And more than 80% support proposals to hire unemployed fossil fuel workers to clean up old mines and abandoned wells. Nicest of all. This and other polls show that overall the vast majority of American people are ready and wanting the government to invest in clean energy and climate. But will Congress? We shall see. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. Thank you very much, Desiree. Now, yep. uh, to the in the few seconds we have, to the big story that came in too late for today's Green News Report. Yeah, really good news. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals um, has struck down the Trump administration's plan to relax restrictions on greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, and that paves the way for Biden and his administration to enact new and stronger restrictions on power plants. And apparently the judges were really unhappy with the arguments that the EPA tried to bring forth because in their ruling they called it, quote, fundamental misconstruction of the nation's environmental laws devised (laughs) through a, quote, tortured series of misreadings of legal statutes. So that ends the Trump EPA's effort to weaken and undermine climate change policies, at least as regards to power plants. Was was that the rollback of the clean power plan, essentially? No, this was their replacement for the clean power plan. The clean power plan by Obama never came into effect because it was stayed by the Supreme Court. This was the new one, and it is now dead. So it seems everybody, all these administrations are having trouble putting forward any kind of plan. Yeah, you that's a good way to put it. You said there was one other uh, point that they also decided? Well, with this ruling, that means that the Biden administration will not have to wait for the legal fight over the one that was just killed. Ah. They won't have to wait for that to be over before they can write a new one. They can start right away, and that's really good news. That is good news, and I'm sure the Supreme Court will get right on killing that one as well. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Uh, more on that in the days ahead. My thanks to our guest today, the Zero Hours Richard R.J. Escow, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us, and of course for spending the last four years with us as well. Hope you're all okay. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. All of that and this is made possible by those of you who have got gotten us through this mess by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. I can't thank you enough. Don't know where we go from here, but I know we couldn't have gotten this far without you. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here tomorrow under President Joe Biden. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Nice work and you can get it. <laughs>